Okay, let's go for it. We got a lot to cover this week because there's been a lot of headline articles that I want to go over with you all. Let's talk about it. Number one, California's controversial bullet train. This is actually an article that I want to just highlight because there is so much money that continues to be poured into this project and it's going to be a while before it actually materializes. Now, I don't know if there's anything we can do anyways about it, but it's good to chat about and discuss. PG&E's rate hike in California. Let's take a closer look as to what's going on. Why does it keep increasing and what's likely to occur? San Francisco's decline, worse than New York City, says JP Morgan CEO. Now, Jamie Dimer is very invested now in the Bay Area, kind of by choice because of the acquisition for First Republic. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that unfolds, like whether he'll continue to make investments here or he will divest here. Time will tell on that, but I got some comments certainly on that. Work from home paradox, bosses versus employees. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about also the higher housing costs bear to young adults leaving to leaving home. We'll certainly have opinions about that. Google and Lendlease's tech-driven real estate venture falling apart. A Barry Area City's remarkable achievement. You may not have known of this because of the stigma that you may have had about this city for many, many years and many decades, but things are changing and there could be a potential bets. Next, Brazilian Gamer's $25.4 million investment in Atherton Properties. And I got a fan question and feel free to leave any questions that may come up here related to my take on Sausalito, Mill Valley, Tiburon, and Belvedere. Let's go for it. So, opinion, does anyone want the bullet train? Hoping for LA to San Francisco in three hours feels lonely. The immediate comparison that I would have is what are the successful operators that we have when it comes to this kind of distance? If you think about it, from LA to San Francisco takes about 50 minutes on a flight. And there's a lot of regional airports that can get to it very quickly. Now, the way that I think about it is look at what has been going on with China, what has been going on with uh japan like look at their bullet trains look how convenient it is for those individuals but what's the difference between them the density of those those hubs are significantly more than anything that we have here and quite frankly the logistics of that travel uh is significantly different right it's if you go from like the san jose airport or the oakland airport most of those are actually pretty good on time they're very small regional airports and if you don't fly into like LAX, let's say you fly into like Burbank or some of these other smaller regional ones, it's actually very, very convenient and it's very, very uh, easy. But, and, and to be fair, like the density is so different from the ones in the Bay versus the ones like in, in those other places in Asia. So that, that's kind of one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is like the cost keeps ballooning, right? Because as they work on it, one, the time it takes is much longer, but also too, all the different costs of whether acquiring the land, doing the work, like it's almost like, I don't know if it, it will ever appear. And once, and even worse, while you have the run up, take a look at the examples that we have already for the, the regional ones, right? The regional ones like um, the BART station, like the BART station continues to lose money consistently and this project is not something for locals. This is purely from a like a 
this is purely from a, just a traveling perspective. It's not even that. It's it's not even a, a a a local social benefit one. It's purely from a will it will it compete against the airline industry from these domestic trips? That's the big question mark always about this project. And so we will see how this ultimately plays out. Will it be nice to ride on it? Kind of, not really. Because think about it. Once you're even at any of these locations, whether you're in LA or you're in the Bay. You're still gonna need either another public transit or you're gonna need to then get a car to get around to all these places. So this was always a very bizarre thing. Um, but we'll see. We'll see if this materializes, but what happens, but always very, very questionable. Another troubling thing, right? Like PG&E. PG&E becomes California's most expensive power provider. All the increases come as PG&E plans to start issuing stockholder dividends in 2024, the first time since it declared bankruptcy and reorganized in 2018. I mean, think about the business model of PG&E. They are a regulated industry, so technically they're not supposed to be able to increase it too much, but they are a monopoly. Most places outside of a few select cities in the Bay, uh, you don't really have an option. So unless you like pretty much live in, like a, in Santa Clara, where they can have their own grid, you're going to be locked in to whatever the options are for PG&E. And because PG&E, PG&E is also like somewhat in a bind too, right? Like on one end, they provide power for an entire region. On another end, they have some that are the ones that causes the most problems. Where are the areas that cause the most problems are the places that are a little bit off the grid. I mean, think about where the fires were and where the lines were. It's a whole lot more expensive to just say, look, I'm just going to build it underground, especially if it's already there. And the amount of people in those areas is also significantly less. Like it would be to be fair, the most fair where the people that are further out or the higher chances of risk, similar to what we have seen with Unravel with like the insurance side of things like homeowners insurance or home insurance, like perhaps they should be the one paying significantly more to be able to be out in that kind of area, but also being a lot more troublesome with the risk, but they can't really make, they can't do that, right? They can't say, look, your risk is five, 10 times higher. I am going to say your energy bill is 10 times more. Because the, the issue too is those areas are also some of the cheaper areas. Like think about, think about the places nearby in Los Gatos. You can live in Los Gatos and you can be in the sprawling area, convenient to things, things are significantly more expensive than if you lived in the hills side of Los Gatos. Those homes could be a third the value. Not obviously it's a pain and it's a it is an issue to get to that location, but uh, but it's also significantly less. So the people that are affording those places have actually way less of a budget than those like every one of us that lives like in the suburbs that are paying what we pay. So they are always in this tricky bind because they can't just be like, look, I don't want to give you power or I want to cut off power. Like the insurance agencies are doing that right now, right? If you live in the hills, you're going to have to pay fire insurance. If you don't pay fire insurance, we're not going to give you insurance. And then what are you going to do? Then the state is the one that's covering and accommodating that, that, that portion. So it's not an easy thing when it comes to PG&E, but at the same time, PG&E is a publicly traded company. So you as a stock investor or a holder, a shareholder may say, look, if I'm going to invest in this stock, I do want to see returns. And a big part of the utility benefits for a long time was getting dividends back, 
right? Um, but because of all of these different things happening, they're, they're in this tricky bind. So they either have to figure out, like just increase the rate significantly, which they have and will likely continue to have, or how do they juggle these still existing issues and never mind the future ones? Like, do you think wildfires from their issues may occur uh, again? Well, it's not unlikely if they're if they have all this exposure and not be not being able to take care of that as they should. So, very very tricky thing. But the reality is, as generally people that are using PG&E, all of us are going to be the ones that will be bearing the brunt of this repeatedly year after year. So, if I was budgeting for myself. Don't be surprised that you should be budgeting more than inflation, significantly more than inflation, because this is not an inflation thing. This is also on like risk, fixing problems. Uh, it's going to be a whole lot more than what you'll be paying for inflation. So energy in the Bay uh, will certainly be a, a very big thing to continue to keep an eye out for, but also factor in accordingly. Next, JP Morgan CEO, JP Diamond says, San Francisco is in far worse shape than New York City. So recently this week, they had a really big conference. They had that health health tech conference. Did anyone of, did anyone go to that event? If you're a startup or if you're even in a big health organization, you may have attended that event. Happens every year. And you have lots of investors, lots of financial firms, and a lot of healthcare companies. And so every year they come around the first few weeks of January for a week long. But the biggest thing that he has said is combination of two things. One is about the safety about the area and two about the housing supply and the density. I find this very interesting. Now, I'm not pointing to one doing one doing the other, but I'm going to point over a high level of what I've noticed. When I go to New York, you can see. Now, New York has its own challenges in itself, but that's because also a lot of people want to be there and want to want to live in that city. But they've also done a lot of things really well, right? It's very convenient to get from one place to another. It's uh, super dense in a lot of areas. You can still see skyscrapers constantly being built. Like that's the thing with New York. Like you're seeing lots of supply continue to hit on the market. Now it may not be affordable supply per se, but there's a lot of inventory that can keep uh, helping. The, the challenge for them is it's so desirable, especially for younger people that they're willing to go there and pay really, really high rents to live in that city. But in San Francisco, they don't have that ability, right? Outside of, quite frankly, the areas that are just not doing as well. So if you look at places like Soma, there, there are actually a good amount of new construction that has been allocated or new construction that have been approved. But now developers are like, I don't think this is the right time to do it. Let's wait and see. And so there's not going to be too much new, more new supply. And even those that are, are already existing, it's, they're not, it's, not, it's not easy for them to go through and sell those units. So the ones that are actually available, there's actually many that are pretty affordable and that are available to purchase, but those are not selling that well. So why build more? And so you have all these different things that are there. So what are the ways to do it? You've seen examples, right, where Google is set to build a 15,000 residential campus surrounding San Francisco headquarters. I mean, that would be incredible if they were actually going to perform on that. We're going to see some things momentarily. Like, I don't know if that's really going to happen, um, but that was part of their pitch to be able to get 
potentially some sort of deals or some sort of uh, corporate real estate, maybe for cheaper, right? There's a, there's a lot of other angles to it as they strike a deal with the city. But unless it's a joint venture thing or a partnership with these big companies, which they're all trimming a lot of uh, overhead right now anyways, that's not likely to occur. So what are the options? The only other options is you got to make the zoning specifically different. You got to allow a lot more construction. I mean, there's always this aspect of nimbyism that will continue to happen. Just take a look at what's been going on in Berkeley uh, at that People's Park altogether. That's not even a big construction site, but there's people have to make adjustments or the, the uh, officials have to be stronger and more adamant about what needs to be done. And it's just, it's a critical thing. It's like an emergency that needs to be done. Right. And so I'm not sure if San Francisco has that kind of strength to be able to do that or that kind of political will. But as you have more inventory, naturally, you're going to have a cap as to uh, how much home, how much home prices can either increase or how much rents would be. And that naturally will help a lot more people being able to afford and want to move into that area. Now, they have a different matter altogether, though, is the aspect of just significant uh, lack of people want to go into the office, especially in San Francisco. That's another problem that we went over many, many times through these session, through these um, through these live streams that I'm not going to go over today. But those are all different problems altogether. But those are the interesting things that I've kind of seen and compared between New York and here. Like New York isn't necessarily cheaper, but they do have a lot more. So they fit clearly a whole lot more in Manhattan and even across the bridge in New Jersey and different places like that. And so if they're able to do significantly more, that will certainly help. But a lot of that has to do with clearly on the zoning and also on uh, the red tape that's been going on. And I don't understand why it's so difficult, right? Like it doesn't make that much even monetary sense because think about it, if you were a city and you can get a sliver of the taxes that are generated from it, that's a positive thing for the city. So why don't they build more? It doesn't make that much sense either. Like New York, if, I'm sure the city can get a bunch of taxes from building high density units, whether it's property tax, right? That's a big one. Or maybe they have some sort of tax from the developers. Um, there's so many different ways of how they can generate income. And it doesn't, it just doesn't make, I don't know what they're doing. Like it's like, that's how you stimulate things. I just got back from uh, Malaysia uh, over the winter holidays. They got a ton of construction. I just went to India too. Ton of construction. Why do these places do so much construction? Right? It's because it's a win for everybody. It's a win for more inventory. It's a win for contr helping control some prices. It's a win for the local cities and the state for collecting revenue, which then can be funded for other local projects. It's a win for everybody. The only losers per se would be maybe the existing homeowners. But as long as the overall pie is growing, then those values still also go up. So if you think about it as a zero sum game, it's always a problem. But if you think about it, like, can you grow this pie? Then it's, it's, it's a positive for everyone. But that's a different thinking and a different way of life. Now, the reason why I'm very hesitant about a company being able to fund projects is think about this google had been the most profitable money machine in history there was nothing more profitable and scalable than that 
on the greatest heydays. And certainly with a combination of AI and most importantly with ChatGPT, that dominance will not be there. Now they may not, they may not be gone by any means, but the same kind of strength that they have and the outlook that they have is completely different. So when they were trying to do these like downtown village projects and things like that, like that was all fine, especially in San Jose, which was a little bit further out already than their main hub. That was already a question mark, especially of how long it took. Like the city should have been really just gun ho about it, right? When things are good, let's go. And when you go, then they're kind of, they're committed to actually building and doing it. But if it takes so long to get things zoned, try to negotiate deals, trying to just waste all this time, time did not help them, right? Google is not the same position as it was a few years ago when they were really planning these out. And so how do you know what are leading indicators, whether this is still gonna be the same size? You can look at the partners that they work with. Take a look at this, right? The partner that they work with, Len Lease, had revealed plans to cut 57 jobs in the Bay Area. This affects 56 workers in their Sunnyvale office and one in San Francisco, right? It's reducing staff, probably because you can see in November, Google and Lindley's terminated a partnership to develop four huge Bay Area projects, including the projects in transit-oriented neighborhood in downtown San Jose. Google said all four projects will still proceed. Let's see it happen, and then we can be the judge of that. But they've also had probably other deals throughout other areas, like Mountain View and these other places. So very, very questionable whether these will still play, will still ever come around, right? Um, so we will continue to monitor that, but for those that were betting on it, it's hard to be as bullish as it was over a few years ago when you were starting to see some of these. But once you start building, you'll once they start building and constructing, people will then kind of move towards that and, and there'll be more bets to occur. But right now, not looking so good, especially as these big companies are still being extremely profitable and they realize they can do a lot more with less people. So their, their use of space is very different. Now, the other thing though, to be fair is while they are being like a lot of companies are going to be continue to be more and more efficient throughout the years, they're going to be more and more profitable throughout the years, but that's a different question of what happens with, the, the need of people needing to be within an office, right? What is the situation of people needing to be in close to the area? So there's a, a good survey that occurred. Bosses want to work from home more than employees do. Okay, and I'll have some comments on that to be fair. Uh, it says new survey, but they're still pushing RTO requirements. Why do you think bosses want to work from home more than employees do? I think there's actually several reasons. Think about it. Generally bosses, they're, usually older than many employees. So they may have families. They wanna spend more quality time with their family, right? So those are all valid reasons. They may be focusing a little bit more on the work-life, life balance side of things. So those are all popular reasons. They may need more space. So if they needed to live close by, they need to afford more versus they can move further out, they can have more space for less. All valid, valid, all valid reasons. But the difference is the bosses, the amount of middle-level managers and the managers have grown significantly over the years and their bosses want them to perform at a high level, especially as a result, there was a lot more pressure from the stock side of things, from shareholders, also from just improving productivity. 
And so if you have no choice and you needed to listen to your boss, and it's not like you have that much flexibility to just walk up and leave to go somewhere else, you're going to be following this chain of command. So while it may be technically a little bit cheaper, but the key for a lot of these is how do you drive more productivity? And that's where, where it's happening across the board, especially in, in, in various companies. So uh, the RTO managed are very strong. There are some very, very adamant and leaders that are are requiring people to be back in the office, especially a lot in Wall Street, like JP Diamond, uh, the CEO of JP Morgan Chase, or Jamie Diamond has been always saying that over and over again. We want people back in the office. People are not productive at home. And there's a, a pretty big consensus around that. The other thing, take a look at this other separate article altogether on the Wall Street Journal. And this just, this just got posted like yesterday. Remote workers are losing out on promotions, new data shows. New data shows that people who log on from home five days a week get fewer promotions and less mentoring than people in the office. Very, very true. But like I own a workforce, I have people that are local, I have people that are overseas. Like it's not just a pure work, it's not just a pure clock in the clock out, right? A lot of it has to do with the, the social aspect of things outside, right? Like are you, uh, engaging with your colleagues? Is there other conversations of like getting to personally know people? Right? These are things that are not, are very, very difficult to just purely do on a remote setting. Like you're not, you basically don't know much of their personal lives at all if they're just working remote. They're almost like a, almost like a pure contractor. I mean, think about it. It's almost like a pure contractor that you're working with. And so, but a lot of it isn't always on skill and merit. We all know that. When I was in the workforce for over a decade, it was always that way. It wasn't about the best performer gets the promotion, gets the gets that corner office, gets gets the, the new opportunities. It was never that way. It was partially a lot politics wise, right? And so because of that, do you think you as a remote worker can play the politics game as well? And the answer is no, there's no way you could. Right, and that's part of it. But I mean, there's nothing you can do about it. And so that's also very important. One, the promotion side of it. Of it. Two, we have seen for a long time, it's the people even keeping their jobs, right? When, when companies are trimming, they may trim those people that are like, look, hey, look, John Doe, I haven't even seen that guy in a long time. Uh, I'm not as attached to him either. Uh, if we're gonna lay someone off, let's just lay off that person. So you see it, one, that may happen, and two, the amount of job posting for remote work is also significantly less. You all know that, you all have seen it. If, you've, if you have experienced that, leave in the comments below, like with, leave in the comments below with, with, that, with, with that, of that company or that environment, because I, I know for a fact that's happening across many of my, many of my clients. So these are all things that uh, are happening, right? So. Uh, it's up to you as an individual. Of course, if you have the pure remote work environment, you can make it work, kudos to you. But majority will not have that ability or if they're trying to grow and go on like corporate climb, they're not gonna have that flexibility. So that's something to be mindful of. Next, why can't today's young adults leave the nest? Blame, blame high housing costs. Now I look over this as two ways. Uh, I'm obviously Asian. Many people in the Asian household do it differently, 
right? Like a lot of people still live in, with their family, combination of them supporting their, their, their parents, their grandparents, combination to be fair, saving money. So I look at it as two ways. It's not just the cost of housing, it depends on how it's being used. So if people are saving money, there's no shame in that. Like this whole idea of you gotta live on your own, so you're independent, there is no shame of you sacrificing the independence, but as long as you're accumulating it and you still have the goal to be able to get your own place sooner than later, that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, think about the average rent. If you are being conservative and you find a place to rent like in a house, maybe that's between 800 to 1,200 bucks a month. If you are getting your own place though, uh, a one bedroom, let's say that's plus or minus 25 to three grand a month, right? That's a lot of money post-tax that you are, uh, that, that you can't even then invest either, that you are spending to have that independence. So it depends on, I would I would have a, a, a mixed feeling about this, right? Like if, now it's different if you're just like like leeching off your the, your parents and uh, and you're just like going lavish, there's no, there's no pride in that. But if you're doing from your own finance perspective, then I think this is fine. But yes, of course, things are gonna get more and more expensive. We're gonna continue to be more in a renter economy. Like that is, that, there is no signs of why that should change, right? Like that, there's no reason for that to change. It's gonna be more and more of renters. But think about it, who owns those homes? Like homeowners, many of them are multi-homeowners. So which side do you want to be on? That is happening across the board, right? The people that own homes, there are many people that, that own multiple homes. A lot of my clients own multiple homes. They're not one homeowner. And so that will continue to grow in its own way. So it, it is what it is. You can complain about it all you want, but you can also try to figure out a solution that can work for what seems to be inevitable. So that's something to be aware of too. Next. One, one thing I always want to cover, especially of those that live in the Bay Area for a long time. You know, I'm born in the Bay Area, so I've lived here my entire life. And because of that, I have stigmas because I remember what it used to be like. And when you think of something, you're like, it used to be X. I mean, think about this. If you ever went to any place, whether it's local in the Bay or some place you came from, maybe you came from India, maybe you came from China, maybe you came from... Uh, Europe, whatever it may be. Europe may be different, but if you came in these other places, you may say like, I remember it used to be like this. And so that's what I remember and that's that's how I'm always gonna remember it. Oh, I wouldn't have ever gone there, right? But things change. Now, I'm not saying it'll indefinitely change, but it's also good to know, right? Like you're not, you may be right of assessment at one point, but you may have to reanalyze things. And this is a, a pretty good news about that. This Bay Area city saw no homicides in 2023. A city on the peninsula that was once dubbed the nation's murder capital in 1992. How long ago was that now? Dang, that's 31 years ago. It's celebrating a huge milestone. No homicides in 2023. East Palo Alto used to be known for a violent crime, but last year the city saw zero homicides. A lot of, res a lot of great work and respect. In general, as you can see, it has been significantly lower to begin with. But that, but the idea of why I, I share this is one to commend what they're doing clearly. 
I mean, these are all good milestones. There are other areas that are doing worse than before. So when you see progress, that's a good thing. But when you see progress like this, these are potential opportunities too, right? Like when, when now a lot of people start to see, wow, East Palo Alto, East Menlo Park, Redwood City, like these places that are doing better, those are potential good upsides because as more feel that way, there is more opportunity for a greater return because now it shifts from different categories, right? That's, that's how investments work is when they shift from one kind of subset to another, now you have a bigger buyer pool. So of course it's more desirable. So those tend to do well. So I wanted to point this out because when I saw this, I'm like, good job to them, uh, incredible work. Obviously there's still a lot to work and then to improve on, but good sign. Now, sometimes I like to highlight just like big news, right? Brazilian gamer, okay? He's not, he's not, he's not an eSport gamer. He actually built a massive company. Pays $25.4 million for side-by-side -side Atherton properties. Uh, just months after becoming a partner at SF-based VC firm, benchmark mobile game entrepreneur and early Brexit investor has purchased a two-parcel Atherton property for $25.4 million. I just I like to just highlight some of these big news is because even though he doesn't obviously need to do any of this, uh, he certainly has done it. So these valuable properties, I did the math when it comes to uh, like these really good areas like Atherton, right? Like the really, really nice areas. What's interesting is because it's so confined, like there's no new spot for you, right? There's no new land or anything that's now all of a sudden available. It's, it's a very locked region. And so the wealthiest people in all the Bay Area may choose to live there. And some of the wealthiest people all around the world choose to live there. And if they want to be in the Bay, like if they're a VC, they're in tech, they're a, they had a good exit, whatever it may be, they would tend to still want to be close to the action, right? Clearly he's making a bet or he wants to be saying like, look, the next many big companies are still going to be in the Bay. So they have some level of roots there. At the same time, what I found really interesting is some of these really higher end places, the returns from the houses in Atherton actually outperform a lot of the other houses in a lot of their other areas, right? Like, so if the median price of Atherton was 4 million X years ago, and now it's at 8 million, like that, annual growth rate is some of the highest I have seen. I've seen some clients that have lived in Atherton for a long time. I'm like, dang, you bought this for X and it's now, and I just do the math. I'm like, wow, it's now worth probably Y. That is an incredible growth rate. So sometimes when you think about buying a place, it's not just these cheaper areas that tend to have a better return. It's actually sometimes a highly desirable area because the difference is the supply is so finite. Very different trend of thought, very different way of thinking about it. But I wanted to point this out because it was fascinating when I ran the numbers for my client that lived in Atherton. But it's also very fascinating for you to also see like these still are happening. $25 million buys are happening. You may not be hearing of it or caring about it, but they are still going on, right? And there's a reason why they do that. Obviously, this person can just pay rent and pay, I don't know, a million bucks uh, to pay for rent. But uh, they've made it work and still want to settle down. And there's always people that are selling down, especially if they're still bullish on, uh, in this case, tech uh, in the local area. Okay, cool. So 
I want to highlight this. Thank you, Oceanfront Chalet. Hi, Spencer. Love the podcast, my normal method of listening. And yes, by the way, many of you guys are watching on YouTube, but many of you are also tuning on the podcast. I'm, I'm not doing a whole lot different on the podcast per se, but uh, it's a great way for your commute to listen in and to learn. And uh, feel free to subscribe there if that, if that works for you. In this video and your other recent videos delving into individual cities, you asked what cities your listeners would like you to cover. I would love to hear your take on Sausalito, Mill Valley, Tiburon, and Belvedere. So, for most of you that do not know, this will be in, ultimately, Marin County, north of San Francisco. So, what is my opinion about that? My opinion about that region altogether is this. What does it have also going for it? So, what it has going for it, let me change this. What it has going for it is several things. The weather is very mild there. It has a lot of people enjoy a lot of like, I've seen a lot of my clients that live out in that region. They love the biking. They love running. They love exercising there. They love, they have a lot of great hikes. It is closer if you enjoy anything related to like wine country. There's also a lot more, um, a lot more, I would say space, but also just like the lifestyle of boating, right? Like that's a very much more popular than a lot of other regions throughout the Bay. And to be fair, if you think about it, that area is also pretty landlocked. So while they can keep growing further and further up north, there's still lots of land there. The core area closer to the city, like San Francisco, is very tight, right? So there's uh, there's just not much there uh, to do to like build. So you have this uh, constraint on supply, and generally a lot of the areas have very good schools. So a lot of people will choose to do that. But what? So those are all the pros. And to be fair for what you can get in that region versus let's say you go to San Mateo County or even like the nice places in the East Bay, it's, it is more affordable. It is cheaper in general in that area versus those others. So that's a, a huge pro, right? A huge pro of that area. The con is a couple of things. The, the main cons would be generally, I would say 95% plus of my clients that live in that area, they tend to have San Francisco as their hub. But if you work in tech and you may not have that kind of flexibility, maybe you, your next opportunity is in Palo Alto, that would be a, a horrendous commute to try to go through San Francisco to get to your work. Never mind, and that's Palo Alto. That's not even that south yet. Never mind if you want to go more south of some other companies, Mountain View, Santa Clara, Cupertino, etc. Then it will be just god awful. So that's a that's that's a number one thing. It's like where is your line of work? And what is, uh, uh, where do you feel like your next growth opportunity or your next opportunity may be? Number one. Number two, the downside of a lot of it is their terrain is also significantly different. So if you think about a lot of places in San Mateo County, think about a lot of places throughout other parts of the Bay, the land is pretty flat. Like it's generally pretty flat versus in a lot of those cities, uh, it's all over the place, which is good and bad. The pro of that, kind of squeezing another pro, is they have incredible views. A lot of them have great views. 
The downside of it is um, it's going to be case by case. Like how much, how easy access is it for guest parking? Like street parking, that's you take it for granted in, in some of these places, but in some very nice places on the hills, like it's it's impossible or it's just not. It's kind of borderline dangerous. So that's there's that one component. The other component is which side of the hill are you on, right? Does your do you actually have a yard? Some just has a, just a deck because there's no real usable lot. So the lot sizes could be bigger, but how much is it really usable? Now, to be fair, this is this applies to a lot of areas. If you think about the whole west part of San Mateo County, it's a similar thing, right? It's a similar thing. Now, the the, the homes in the west parts of San Mateo County are usually double what things cost in Marin County, but the same like logic. So those are the, the, the benefits. Now, the other pro is it's not that dense out there. So because the lots are bigger, because of the spacing, uh, you're going to have more privacy. So those are all the pros and cons related to your question. Hopefully that helps and certainly love to help on any of that. But those are all from my opinion, from a analysis perspective, but also quite frankly, from just clients, actual feedback. There's a reason why prices are what they are. It's all built in. It's not a secret spot by any means. Those are the pros and cons. All right. Well, hope you all enjoyed the latest episode. I hope you like the format. If you do, be sure to subscribe, be sure to like this video. And of course, send me a DM if you want to go over options about what your goals are. In the last week, we've helped about three people get in contract. So congratulations to all your clients.